0: what's up guys welcome back and welcome to the first episode of the bitcoiner book club so i was reading the sovereign individual recently very popular book in the bitcoin space um i had put off reading it for a long while i guess and had finally come around to it and was pretty blown away by uh the book in general and how you know i've always been very interested in understanding how history unfolds you know basically why the world looks like the way it looks today and what were the factors in our history that led it to to uh, being the way that it is and uh, of course there's many books out there that are great at helping to contextualize or put a framework over understanding the world and how uh, it evolves and how civilization and culture evolves but I found this one to be particularly um, impactful you know it really really had an impact on my perspective and how i see things uh, unfolding and again it brought together a lot of kind of disparate thoughts that i had had but i'd never had them coalesce in a way that was as clear as uh, is presented in this book so i know that's been the case for a lot of bitcoiners as well and i thought it would be fun just to uh, bring a bunch of them together and have a chat about it so i uh, reached out on twitter asked if anyone wanted to uh, review the book with me, have a chat about it. And I got a bunch of DMs back and to try to make this both, you know, relevant and entertaining for people who've read the book as well as perhaps um, people who haven't and given them a a way to understand the book maybe without reading it or just provide some, you know, maybe even just kind of tickle their interest before they get into the book. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit more than a general conversation. So I asked that, you know, if, if you just kind of want to talk about it, then maybe wait for another book. But if you really, if it was really impactful for you, and you were willing to kind of do a bit of work, take some notes on it, draw on those notes during the course of the discussion, and tease out some of the insights that you found most beneficial, then you know you'd be welcome to uh, to join the conversation. So we got about five or six Bitcoiners who uh, fit that description, and uh, we had a really good time just talking about this book and uh, what we all felt about it and how it influenced um, our respective ways of thinking on on the world and on Bitcoin and on history and on culture, society, et cetera. So uh, this is gonna be a bi-weekly thing now, the Bitcoin Book Club. If you're interested in any of the books that uh, we're we're going to cover and I'll post on Twitter when it's been decided, then definitely hit me up, send me a DM, let me know that you wanna be involved and uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. But we're gonna do one every other week And we're going to do a bunch of the popular books in the space and then hopefully throw in a few curveballs as well and just uh, have a fun time talking about these books that uh, have been extremely influential in uh, many of our thinking. As always, if you've got any feedback or ideas on how we can make this thing better, definitely hit me up and let me know. And without further ado, let's get on to episode one of the Bitcoiner Book Club discussing a classic work, The Sovereign Individual. So, gents, thank you for joining me for the inaugural episode of the Bitcoiner Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing a seminal work in the Bitcoin space. One is that the one that is often recommended, and one that I have to admit I was late to uh, reading. Only just finished it recently, and that is "The Sovereign Individual." Um, from my perspective, what I thought was interesting about this book was it provided. A kind of unified context through which a kind of a unified context to interpret the evolution of history. And I think a lot of us probably look at the disparate individual characteristics of history, whether it be information technology or or obviously with Bitcoin or the changes in weaponry or you know, whatever lens we looked through before, but at least for me, it was all kind of disparate. And this really helped bring it all together and put a cherry on the top for a way to interpret how things change. And it actually ended up giving me kind of a sense of peace about how everything is unfolding. Um, and it's worth noting that this was written in 97, 98, I believe, and much of what it uh, referred to and predicted, I think we're seeing in many different manifestations in culture around the world today. I think that's part of the reason why it's so interesting and in that it's so prescient and that it's predictive power has been so accurate so i thought this would be a great book to start uh this big Corner book club sort of podcast and i uh, thank you guys all for being here and uh, why don't we just go around you guys can do a brief introduction at whatever you know level uh you're comfortable with and then maybe just uh, uh, give your your two cents about the book and then we'll dive into the specifics blake why don't you get us kicked off
1: yeah great so uh, nice to meet you all uh you know, you know, I've been a Bitcoiner for a while. Um, got into it uh, a while back, um, not as early as I would have liked, um, but I kind of felt what uh, was in this book was already kind of happening. I obviously two thousand eight, was very impactful for me, um, and starting to understand the Reser- uh, Federal Reserve and supporting Ron Paul uh, just felt like a, a plea, maybe not be, be the right word, but just like a surf where you know felt uncontrolled, not. Don't have any power and any control. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin came along, and I just got it. So it was it was nice to have understand the problem, and then and then uh, find the solution. Um, you know, the the sovereign individual for me is a great book because it takes a you know ten thousand year view of of history, and it really becomes obvious to me how impactful cryptocurrency or obviously Bitcoin is going to be in that uh, the change that's happening um to society and in, in a positive way um so the biggest theme for me in the book was the return on violence um, which is the idea that if you were to rob somebody you know what are the returns you can get versus the risk you know you being killed versus you being able to take that asset and i start to think through you know almost all of history and think what and how it would have been changed if bitcoin was around so columbus invading the aztec empire and stealing their gold, if they were able to put it on a, a treasure uh, hardware wallet and be able to email it to a friend, uh, you know, in North America or vice versa, like that would change history uh, and the return on violence. So if I'm not explaining the return on violence correctly. Again, it's it's just the the idea that you can be able to extract resources with violence, and then uh, the risk reward uh, on that. And so that to me is the main theme of the book uh and is the easiest to follow throughout history but it has also never been explained um with any real kind of logic where you're looking at a business case for invading another country and you could say we can get their gold or breaking into someone's home Uh, and then you look at the technology advances for defense and offense being able to protect yourself with a gun i think was a big one Uh, and just kind of look through that lens through history and you can see that over the last let's say five thousand years that it's been trending towards um personal, uh, or individual, um, ability to protect yourself. The return on violence has is, is been being removed. And so you can think about, you know, being a knight or, or being a samurai warrior, you'd be able to go into a town, you're well armored, you're well-trained, and you'd be able to you know, take advantage, advantage of the whole village. Well, with a gun nowadays, you can't do that. A, a, you know, an untrained villager has a gun and can protect him or herself. Uh, So I guess that'd be the main theme that I picked up from that. And uh, it's very exciting to think about where we're at in terms of that, because Bitcoin just really uh, changes that return on uh, violence. It just totally changes that where there's no way that you can know how much somebody has, but also chances are we'll never be able to get it from them. So um, that's a very, very powerful thing to move forward on. Again, if you start going through the examples of throughout history, what if? uh, you know, Germany didn't have the ability to get gold from the Jews or invade France, so that—that uh, that to me is the main theme.
0: Yeah, nice. And actually, I uh, at the beginning I was going to, for people who haven't read the book, I was going to give the authors' uh, synopsis of the theme of this book, just so we have an overarching umbrella of what this, this, you know, what the book was kind of about. So, Chris, I'll hit you next, but I'm going to read this first. And so the authors say. The theme of this book is the new revolution of power which is liberating individuals at the expense of the 20th century nation state. Innovations that alter the logic of violence in unprecedented ways are transforming the boundaries within which the future must lie. If our deductions are correct, you stand at the threshold of the most sweeping revolution in history. Faster than all but a few, or faster than all but a few now imagine, microprocessing will subvert and destroy the nation state creating new forms of social organization in the process. This will be far from an easy transformation. Our desire is to help you take advantage of the opportunities of the new age and avoid being destroyed by its impact. If only half of what we expect to see happens, you face change of a magnitude with few precedents in history. Goosebumps, baby. All right, Chris, uh, why don't you give us your take? Oh man, how am I supposed to follow that up?
2: (laughs) Um, so I'm um, Chris Porter, uh, I heard about Bitcoin in 2013 and was dumb enough to not do anything about it. And then uh, my best friend in, in 2017 was getting all excited about it and, and was like, oh, dude, you got you to gotta learn about this. And I was like, I already know. And I, I had kind of written it off then and uh, and then I got back involved when he, he was so excited. So it's a little bit about uh, my history, uh, but well, and, and he and I have... Started and stopped podcasts and and done some different things, uh, trying to educate people in the space. Um, so for me, reading uh, the sovereign individual, it just it blew my mind and it kept blowing my mind in, in different ways. So the the first one was uh, that five hundred year cycle, just profiling history and looking at you know these different segments in time. Um, and uh, I, I think of it almost like uh, a generation so like the the hippie generation and then you know what came immediately after that was a um a reaction from the previous generation well the authors really profile 500 year cycles and why each cycle is kind of a reaction and and almost inevitable that the next you know that you can predict what the next wave will be based off of you know what the previous one was um, and then the the other thing that i think really ties it into uh, the, the Bitcoin space, is this idea of the, the asymmetric, asymmetric advantage of cryptography. Um, and so that's where I, I feel like the authors are starting to predict uh, Bitcoin because they, they really profiled, um, you know, w- why does it matter? So, you know, if you build a, uh, a, a brick wall around your house, it might take you a month to build it, but it might take an attacker only a few hours to destroy it. Well, all of a sudden, now with Bitcoin and with cryptography, there's uh, the the tables have turned, right? So somebody can cryptographically, um, you know, protect their hard drive, and now it takes someone, you know, just uh, eons in order to try and crack that. And so uh, now this the scale of violence um, has, has really shifted, and you know, for that individual, um, they can they can protect themselves against potentially nation states.
3: Uh? Oh, yo, what's
4: up? <laughs> All right, I'm Guy Swan, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know, and uh, uh, Bitcoiner class of 2011. And Jesus, uh, it's been a crazy, crazy ride. Um, and good lord, this book. Um, oh, listen to Bitcoin Audible. What's up? Yep, do that. <laughs> Um, but this book was this did it did such a good job of articulating a a framework to just look at all of history. Um, and I think one thing that it did uh, particularly well was to look back prior to the nation state with an objective lens to to not take like our political baggage of like what we think of as like loyalty to the state and like politicians and like bureaucracy, like what we think of as normal today. And because I, I, I feel like I never really got that, even not learning what I feel like were the important things in school, regardless, just looking back in history, I feel like we so often look at it through a lens of like, this is what we think of as, as important. So this is clearly, that's what we need to look for a thousand years ago. You know, like they thought of it through the lens kind of of a nation state. And they didn't Um, and like some of the explanations of like kind of feudal setups and like how, you know, chivalry was like the ultimate like and replacing things that we take as dear or like hold as like, you know, you must be true to your country. You can't be treasonous sort of thing and then comparing it to like, you know, the the ideas of chivalry or like something that we might think of is like ridiculous then, but they could just turn around and see what we as we do is ridiculous, you know. Um, and, and then to see the whole thing, just like both of y'all brought up was as a payoff to violence, is that like how we started to be able to accumulate wealth and, uh, and then suddenly that meant that we could steal wealth because now we had it now suddenly, now suddenly it was here. And then we had to organize against it and how the scales of basically these systems of networking operated and, and where their vulnerabilities were. And then just to take that lens and look at the whole like stroke of history was just so cool because it was more coherent when I, when I first stumbled upon this book than I had ever really had a mental image of history. Like you, like you said, uh, John was just that it was all disparate stuff. It was just like crap that happened in dates and you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like a map to follow. Um, and I feel like this one does such a good job of giving a map. And one of the coolest things that uh, I took away from this book was how, for like an image to look at what's happening today, was there was a section where he was talking about. Um, it's it's kind of early on in the book before he really gets into the meat, but he's talking about how it's necessarily the case that the disdain. And the loss of faith in the old system precedes our discovery of its replacement. And I feel like that is where we are. We have reached the point today where we know something is changing. We know the old system doesn't work. Um, and he even talked about it like it was a going back to like looking at thousand year old examples of how it became like a bloated financial behemoth uh, you know like a monolith and it's like what could be a better example of exactly what we're dealing with um, and it like you said it gives a, a feeling of peace is that it's like okay this has to happen you know like the kind of chaos that we're going through right now is part of the process like we have to lose faith in the norm in order for it to go to a better place um, and <sighs> Praise to Satoshi that that better place has Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, we all uh, uh, take a ride there.
0: Well, man, you know, on that point, I, one of the reasons why I was so excited to actually cover this book in this, you know, in this way was because what you meant, you like, we'll look back on history and we'll see uh, kind of modes of behavior. Take chivalry, as you mentioned, right? And we might think, hey, well, they were, you know, really uh, honorable in that time, or we may think, "Hey, they're really weird. Like, why they act like that?" And we, from our position in the current moment, think, you know, we we wouldn't have act acted that way. And you can slide in any example, whether it's deplorable behavior or honorable behavior or whatever. You, you we look back on history and just think our assumption is like they were free thinking individuals who chose to act a certain way, and we judge them based on that as if we are free thinking individuals. Act, deciding to act a certain way. But what, what I feel like this book uh, kind of reveals is how insidious the the circumstance of the logic of violence and the structures that it creates is in imposing or influencing behavior. Uh, and so what that means is that when you have a different structure that emerges from a different logic of violence that is itself a result of the technological dynamic that exists at the time, you're going to get an almost expected set of behaviors as a result of that. And, then, and so chivalry was something in this case that emerged as a result of the structural circumstance that was in place as a result of the technological imperatives basically that were there at the time. And so I think that's really important, uh, not only as an, a way to assess history, but also obviously to assess what's happening in our current time and maybe to kind of check our would-be hubris of thinking that in the current time, we're seeing things clearly. We're always seeing things inside of our current moment. Now, some of us, and I think the Bitcoiners are among them, are probably doing so to a lesser extent. We really try to see things clearly. We try to extract ourselves from the time and circumstance that we're in to to establish that clarity. But of course, I think to do that completely is impossible because we're all, you know, both victims and beneficiaries of this, this circumstance and the structure that has been created by the dynamics that they detail in this book, which is why it's so interesting and juicy because it, 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 it's, it affects almost everything from the social, political, economic, moral, individual, behavioral, all that kind of stuff, uh, which we're going to get into. But I, uh, I'll <laughs> pass it on to Sovereign Hodl and that for uh, an intro.
5: Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, I guess I'm the only uh, non here today, so I'll try not to dox myself too much. Uh, but I'm in Austin, Texas, and um, I've been a big corner since... I guess 2017, but I had my first touch point with Bitcoin in 2012, and then a couple more touch points in 2013, 2014, which usually is the case for most of us. Um, I first was introduced to the sovereign individual when I was at a Bitcoin conference here in Texas and ran into Parker Lewis, and uh, one of his colleagues was reading the book. And I started talking to him about my ideas about Bitcoin, why I got into Bitcoin. And you know, he mentioned, oh, so you, Ascribed to the sovereign individual. And I said, sure, that sounds cool. <laughs> now I had to read the book, right? Um, but, you know, initially when I got into Bitcoin, uh, I came about it through really the liberty movement and um, trying to find ways to uh, reduce the amount of war in the world. Um, coming from the military, uh, got out of the military in the 2010s. And, um, you know, I was really just looking for a way to. Uh, reduce the amount of conflict and war in the world because I'd seen, you know, what the war machine is capable of and I did not like it. Right. So, you know, i tried voting. I tried, you know, getting involved in the Ron Paul campaign. I tried a number of things like that and really couldn't find any answers. Um, but really, when I dug into Bitcoin, I started to see, you know, some of the, the logic of the disintermediation of violence that is mentioned in the sovereign individual. And so after reading the book, you know it really just opened my eyes to, you know, a lot of this dynamic that you're talking about has happened throughout history, and um, it spurred me to read some other books, uh, such as you know, Hop uh, read um, the um, uh, Democracy the God that Failed, and his Private Law Society mm. talks, and it's tie into this sovereign individual idea. Um, so yeah, I mean, really the main thing that I got out of the book was just that the disintermediation of violence. Uh, That is, we have, you know, these different, these different um, dynamics that are going on in the world. You know, we have this deflationary dynamics. uh, We have these inflationary dynamics with currency. We have, um, you know, a a rising, uh, um, you know, set of people that are haves and have-nots. And, you know, I think that um, Bitcoin, as it's mentioned in the book, really is going to give a lot of power to individuals who take control of it. And, is going to allow us to disintermediate some of that violence and reduce the state power. Um, because otherwise I just don't see any other way that's possible.
0: Yeah. Nice. Um, Richard James, also the creative creator of hard money film. What's your take, brother? Hey, hey John. Yeah. I, uh, I think that for me, look, I, you know, I've had this long-term
6: interest in, in the Austrian perspective of economics and, uh, and its critique of, of central banking, um, and I think the, the thinker who's influenced me more than anyone is probably Murray Rothbard um, and his analysis of the state and the state's monopoly on violence, and I've, his, his proposal that humans could operate in a society without a state, without a monopolist on violence, I've found and Sovereign Holdnot, you mentioned Hopper. He sort of um, has a similar take on things that private, be they companies, insurance providers, or whatnot, could um, you know could provide those protection services, police or military that uh, the state usually provides, uh, and they they put forward the argument that it's really a matter of if, if enough people believed in this libertarian ideal or this, this kind of cap- anarcho-capital ideal, we'd be able to put it into place. Whereas the, the sovereign individual, the reason I find it so fascinating is is it puts forward almost the opposite view and says, no, actually you can't. Like, it says, it has this thesis that violence is a natural monopoly. So the state is. is as problematic as the state is, it's inevitable because if you have competing private providers of protection from violence, the end result of that is more violence. So they say that, look, the the state isn't, not just is the the state as a monopolist on violence inevitable, that rewards to violence is the driving force of of the course of human history. Um, And so that in some ways is a, a depressing um thing but then where these two lines of thought intersect is talking about bitcoin and cryptography and the way that microprocessing will decrease returns to violence that what we're seeing now is is a seismic shift and for the first time possibly since the agricultural revolution we're seeing this change in the dynamic where the returns to violence are decreasing uh, and that's definitely a um, cause for for us to hope for a better world.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a phenomenal point. And it, when I was reading this, it of course it it has to inspire in people the idea of like, well, what is your agency or your free will, right? If how how subject are you to the these like large, slow moving changes in the structure of society, based on as you said the. The logic of, of violence and the the ability to you know defend as an indiv- as an individual uh, for example and um you know it, it w- i love the point about libertarianism because you kind of think that politics is like which idea is best how should we structure society and like this one wins for this period of time or this one's not popular or what have you but you know ultimately it seems as you said that the, the one that on average is the one that predominates is the one that's most effective at, at kind of maintaining that monopoly on violence and you, you know you could even look at it from the form of the kind of de- democratic capitalist societies and the more you know the, the, the socialist or communist societies that might have been seen in a more brutal or negative light in in the past and you might think well maybe there's still a small degree of choice. And, you know, we picked, you know, the, the right one, one there. But as you all know in the book, it it outlines why the democratic capitalist you know form of organization was more effective at, at basically generating what was required to exact or maintain a monopoly on violence because it, it, it basically had a larger pool of capital to draw from because the, the the economic structure was more toward capitalism, which generated more wealth, but the democratic structure of governance allowed that wealth to be siphoned off in near limitless amounts, and that could be turned into the, meca- the mechanisms of power, i.e. military might, et cetera. And so it's, it really begs the question, To what degree? Are are we just subject to the evolution of technology? Is that kind of the only thing that determines the structure that we have in society? And as a result, the behaviors that each individual kind of uh, acts within them.
1: I think that actually sums up the book very well. Um, You know, as you're looking back through history and you're understanding what kind of technologies are going to lead to what type of perspectives and what type of actions, um, you know, we like to believe that we are all morally, you know, just, and we're going to, we're going to be doing the right thing, but you know, the, the game, the dynamics and the risk reward is very much going to always play into that. Uh, and when you have the ability to steal, you know, millions of dollars of gold, that's just sitting right in front of you and no one will ever notice, you know, a lot of people are going to take that opportunity. Um, are they going to raise an army and go invade, uh, you know, another country, uh, maybe not, but I think that's that's where this technology is so important is because it changes the economic incentives. And, you know, being in business, I've always thought about a return on investment, you know, is how is this gonna impact me? What's return on investment gonna be? But there's one, you know, I don't wanna say one level above it, but one level above it, which is the return on, return on violence. And I think that's something that's always been playing out throughout history. We've just lived in a very peaceful time, at least I have, the United States where I've never really had to think about the return on and violence and what's the reward and, and, and things of that nature. I've always worked in a uh, capitalist economy where I had to trade with somebody else. I've never had to think about, okay, if I train myself to go invade this other area, I can extract more resources, more gold and things of that nature. So I think you know the ability, I, I think that structure and that technology creates in a lot of ways the game that we're playing or frames the game that we're playing and for the first time, well, I shouldn't say for the first time ever, but in the last 200 years, you can say that the game has changed and we're entering, we have entered a capitalistic society where we're trading with each other a lot more and we can protect each other's property rights. Well, Bitcoin will take that to the nth degree where it, you don't have a lot, have to have a lot of resources to protect yourself. You might not even have to have a gun or maybe a gun, but um, you're going to be able to protect yourself with a lot less resources because, again, you can email this resource or this Particular savings technology to anyone in the world. And so it's a game of hopscotch, as opposed to I can see you have a gold bar, I'm gonna take it from you. I can see you have a toy, I'm gonna to take it from you. I can see you have these resources, we're gonna come in and take it for from you. And if you start to compare the return on violence compared to other products, other savings technologies, other value assets, you know, you can see that this is just light years above and beyond any other. Valuable asset, right? Again, any almost any other asset, somebody's home, you can just break into their home and potentially take it from them, depending on the laws of that area. Uh, and so that's that's really is going to change and is changing that that dynamic. And I think uh, we've seen that dynamic change because of just property rights in the United States. But you know, moving forward, where you don't need a government to take care of your property rights and you don't need a police force to necessarily do that, it becomes much more on the individual level, the sovereign individual, and then you can see. Uh, that changing the game and making the world a lot more peaceful for a lot less of an expense.
0: Yeah, one of I'm going to uh, read this short passage from the book just so that anyone who's been listening so far that hasn't really been following along with the kind of genesis or a good example of of the thesis of this book, I'm going to read a passage, and it's this: farming. So when we went from hunter gatherers to agriculture and farming. Farming created stationary capital on an extensive scale, raising the payoff from violence and dramatically increasing the challenge of protecting assets. Farming made both crime and government paying propositions for the first time. So this is a very simple kind of example of the thesis of this book. That is, when the technology of agriculture created the ability for surplus, then you have the problem of how do I protect my surplus? Whether it be in the form of money or other goods, et cetera. And then so, then um the person who has that surplus then has a need for the protection. And that brings in the element of a protector, whether that be government, and that also brings in the element of crime, as in there's something to steal. So that's what the thesis of this book is getting at is that process keeps playing out on different scales as a result of the evolution of technology. I just wanted to get that in there for anyone who wasn't really getting the thesis of the book yet.
3: Yeah, and they say something like, uh,
6: you know, "Government protection. Government is a protection service, but it's also almost by definition a protection racket. Um, so, okay, perhaps it provides a necessary service, but um, it almost inevitably charges way too much." um, for the service that it provides that it would never, um, if it had to compete on a free market, um, it, it, it
3: would never be able to compete.
4: No. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's, what's funny about that is, um, uh, kind of back to the question, uh, prior was that you were talking about how it seems like we're just totally dependent on technology. Um, like, that is actually something that I I pretty strongly got from the book. And what's funny is that like as somebody who like went through a big shift from being like kind of, I guess, I guess I was like my political persuasion was all over the place for a little while there, but I did have a very nationalistic, like love the flag sort of thing going on in high school. Um, and I went through a huge political shift and like, kind of became a stark libertarian uh, at the end of college and shortly thereafter. Um, And that was kind of my lens for a long time was that just like we keep choosing the wrong political thing that, you know, like here's one that's good and here's one that sucks. And, you know, when you think about the incentives, it kind of fits, you know, like it, it seems like it's right that the incentives would be far better in a libertarian society. But when you when you turn that around and think about the feasibility of it with in an environment where it just pays so much to be violent you realize that it is a it is it is genuinely a a technological problem of how do you make how do you change that payoff how do you change how much someone can get from being a terrible person. And what's beautiful about Bitcoin is that that's kind of at the heart of how the whole thing works. And when you start applying that to the whole world, we'll do that in just a second, but just think about like the internals of like the, the game theory and the, and the thinking, to see the world so clearly, to be able to make something like Bitcoin is to literally turn someone's desire to cheat or desire to profit and um, earn into a force for cooperation. Like that is, that is how the, the mining and incentive structure of Bitcoin works, is that you are rewarded for playing along. You are, you are punished for trying to go against. Um, and I always thought that was one of the most fascinating things about like the Bitcoin game theory and It and it truly does. Like when you start to turn around and realize that when you can guarantee, or well, guarantee when you can uh, secure property and value in a way that's completely at the the discretion of the per of the owner. They are just truly 100% the one in control of it. And that doesn't mean that you can't beat them over the head and be like, give it to me. But just the fact that there is no authority, there is no institution that says, yes, if you need it, we'll give it to you, but that they are the owner, that that is something unique in the world. And that's kind of crazy to think about, that it really isn't something that we have in any other space. and uh, you mentioned that, um, we suck at (laughs) going back in history and standing in someone else's shoes. You know, we always see it from our mental default, our values, our political system, blah, blah, blah. You know, we look back a thousand years in history and we're just miserable at standing in their shoes and their worldview and saying, what does it look like over there? Um, uh, but that Bitcoiners do this a little bit. Um, I think that's, Actually, part because the only way to see the revolutionary potential of Bitcoin is to actually step out of like the normal Overton window of the world today. It's like you kind of have to step away from it and look at it as like a whole thing. And you have to kind of recognize that dynamic of power and violence. And then you're like, wow, Bitcoin really does change this. But if you stay within it, Bitcoin's just an app, you know? It's just a thing on your phone that you could use, but I could use my bank, you know, like without that framework, um, which makes it a huge barrier to understanding Bitcoin, I feel like. But without that framework, you just really can't see what really makes it different. And I feel like this book does such a good job of laying out the framework. And then if you take that and, you know, put it on like a pair of glasses and look at Bitcoin, you're like, holy shit, this is going to change everything.
0: Well, I have to use this quote because of what you, the, the, the analogy that you just used, but they say in the book, the sovereign individuals have undergone the political equivalent of laser surgery. They will be seeing 2020. <laughs> that was a good one.
1: And, and on that seeing 2020, I think, you know, I like to look at it through the inevitability of this happening. And I think back to Guy's point, if you're looking at it as an app, and if you're looking at it compared to PayPal. And if you're looking at it compared to these newer technologies that are relatively new within the last 20, 30 years, maybe, you know, you know, really in the last five years or 10 years that we've had these apps to be able to do these things, then you might not understand it. But if you go back 20 years and you go through the last recession and the last money printing, um, and you start to look at that, all right, it makes a little bit more sense. But if you go back 5,000 years and start to ask questions about what if, you know, different social groups had this technology and had this power, how would that have changed the economic of violence? And would that particular group of people started that war to take those resources away from someone? And so the longer timeline that you look back on, the clearer it becomes that this, at least to me, is inevitable just from that standpoint, Uh, as well as taking a monetary understanding of that as well, where almost all fiat currencies fail. And so you have something that, you know, is ch- completely changing the return on envi- uh, of violence and return on investment of that violence, which, you know, you start to ask the question, like, what if what if there was no reward to violence anymore? You know, if, if during all these wars, what if they actually got nothing from it? You know, would you have Columbus? I mean, this is probably a knock on on, on this, but like he wouldn't have he wouldn't have crossed uh, the ocean to go find the Aztecs and kill them and take their gold. You know, if they were able to protect their resources, it would have never happened. Uh, and that you, you know, and you can think about that for a lot of different things like World War One and World War two. I mean, Hitler, I don't think, would have come to power if you couldn't have been able to go and get the gold from France. That's one of the first things he did. He went and get got all the precious you know uh, liquid uh, assets, gold being the most obvious one. Uh, and I believe there's a book called the Gold Wars that kind of outlines this a little bit. But having studied history, you know it was it was always interesting to me that they never talk about how Germany went from, you know, a destitute country, uh, you know, in debt to a, a global industrial might within, I think it was like 10 years, you know, short amount of time to being able to almost take over the entire world. And I think the money aspect of being able to get that monetary good, gold, is a big equation in that. And so I think it becomes much more obvious and much more inevitable the further back you go. And that's why the sovereign individual is so interesting because it goes back... Uh, you know, arches back through, you know, potentially 10,000 years. I mean, you can see it as, as small little tribes on the savannah or something along those lines. If you can protect your resources more effectively, you can save and you can plan for the future. Uh, and and that to me is probably one of the more exciting things about the book is that it just shows the netherability of this technology as long as it continues to make blocks every 10 minutes. Yeah,
5: yeah I like how the uh, book outlined, you know, the juxtaposition of world powers with the USSR in the 80s and the United States and, you know, just the um, difference between socialism and democracy. And one of the things that stood out for me in the book was uh, that the authors uh, really didn't hold back on criticizing democracy. And they essentially said that the main difference, the main reason that uh, the Soviet Union fell and the United States grew is because democracy was just a more efficient version of socialism essentially that they are cousins right and they talk a lot about you know the power of of nation states um to gain this to grow you know and a lot of it comes from you know seniorage the power to tax and the power to plunder and i think that bitcoin uh, and you know digital currency uh, as they call it in the book um you know really puts that, turns that on its head. And so, I mean, that for me is like the main linchpin for the ability to have these decentralized um, societies that are talked about in the book and um, you know, the, the ability to have sovereignty.
0: Yeah, one of the the lines in the book is, it says, for the first time in history, mega political conditions will allow the ablest investors and entrepreneurs, rather than the specialists in violence, ultimate control over capital, which gets to both, uh, both your points that you were making there. And uh, you know, because, as everyone's been saying, the, the best paying proposition, obviously, wanted to accumulate capital, the most efficient means of doing so was actually to go and take it, You know, if you had the power to do so. Whereas now that that dynamic has changed dramatically. And, you know, it, all of this gets to the point of, you know, another quote from the book is collapses. Is what happens when a centralized control system no long is no longer worth what it costs. And that's what I think Bitcoin and to a lesser extent, the cyber economy, as it were, uh, is doing. It's it's basically implicitly saying, wait, what am I paying for again? Like, wait, what is the value of the services you're providing me? State, nation, nation, state, country, whatever. And it, people are, as people's behavior just kind of intuitively and automatically changes to adapt to the different incentive structure that the cyber economy provides. And they're 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 becoming they, they just wake up one day and say, Oh, I could live anywhere and, and and work and derive income, or I could, you know, I can protect my my own wealth via something like Bitcoin, or I could do this, I could do that. All that frames the question, wait, why am I paying forty percent to The state, you know, why and and the what they decide is I'm paying way too much for what I'm getting, and that's a big thesis of the book as well. Is that you know the the state was a paying proposition for a while. It made sense. It delivered you know a certain degree of value to the people who accepted that proposition. Now, because of the changing technological dynamic, it's not anymore. And more and more people are waking up to that, and they're adjusting their behavior accordingly. Well,
2: and to carry on with that that point. Uh, you know, the authors mentioned that uh, the government will start to have to compete with other people for the services that the government currently offers. You know, so in my head, I I think of, you know, uh, so Bitcoin solves the tragedy of the commons, right? And so uh, if you have a road, right now the governments build our roads. But if you could pay, you know, fractions of a penny every time you used a road or fraction, you know, uh, you know, one Satoshi to walk on the sidewalk, uh, you know, it, it, the, you could start having private institutions offer goods and services that the government's currently offering.
1: And, you know, that I, I just had a, a moment where it kind of clicked for me, and, and that tragedy of the commons that I think is, is happening a lot where our technology companies are. So, you know, the Googles, the, the YouTubes of the world where, you know, w- imagine not just the sidewalk, but you using the you know, someone builds the infrastructure for the YouTube of the future, and you're paying one Satoshi per video um, for those type of things. And and same thing with Facebook. You know, we're we are the product being sold to advertisers, but Bitcoin can change that. And I think that removes the tragedy commons. Uh, and and obviously, the authors wrote this I think in 1997, mm-hmm. so they weren't aware of of things like Google and and YouTube. But uh, I think that would be a, a an extension of that example that you mentioned, Chris.
4: And i think one fascinating thing in this book um and uh it's also kind of something that's just in the whole cypherpunk mailing list it's also in which i haven't finished i actually stopped right in the middle of uh alvin toffler's uh the third wave uh to go back and uh try to tackle this one again uh before we did the show um but uh, uh it, it's like present throughout all of this and like the third wave was even back like that was in like 81 or something if i'm not mistaken um but throughout this like whole two decade period where people were slowly realizing how much you know microprocessing as as it's usually referred to then uh was going to change the world almost uh, invariably like the people who really saw its potential will just talk about independent digital money as if it was already a thing like they're just like this is clearly going to be here no idea what the hell it's going to look like but it's going to be there and when that is there and a government is literally not in charge of it it's going to change everything and the cypherpunks talked about this you know they were trying to build it for 15 years like 20 years like they just kept iterating and iterating and iterating but uh the sovereign individual like truly just takes this as like a complete given. And I just loved it how they talk about it. And this is, you know, this whole decade before Bitcoin existed, like they don't really know if they, they can solve that problem, but he's just like, yeah, you know, somebody's gonna solve it. It's just gonna happen. And this is what the world will look like after that. And it's so funny to be on the same time span, like, like we're like almost the same number of years after Bitcoin as this was written before Bitcoin. Like we're like getting like right there. Um, and it's so funny to see that that and the social networks and kind of the breaking up of that, that joint narrative of the world um, and moving into the online space and then watching everybody's different ways of thinking about the world suddenly clash without this news as their intermediary, like everybody's just like bumping into each other. And it's like, holy crap, we're a lot different and I might hate you for a bunch of stupid reasons. Um, but as more and more of our world goes digital, as more of our value in particular, goes digital, that the less violence will be the director of the world, because it's just not. And you know, when I'm arguing with somebody in, in the digital space, like violence isn't what determines how things move forward. It, just, it, is, it is slowly becoming less and less relevant. We are clearly moving to something that is global. We are clearly moving to something where... It's just, it's just obviously so different, but it's just, it's just, it's insane to be in the middle of it. It's absolutely insane to just be in the middle of this and know how big of a shift we truly are going through. Um, Just the whole basis, like the, the book opens on the fact that like when you're in the middle of it, it's funny that nobody ever sees it. And that's what I feel like. I feel like, Holy shit. We are living through the absolute most insane time with the most insane level of change that is potentially for anybody alive today. And so many people just like, have no idea that it's happening. It's just like, not even, it's not even on their radar. And just, I don't know the, the, the whole. Even worse, is
1: you're amazing. screaming at the top of your lungs to pay attention. And no one yeah. does That's <laughs> the other aspect where you're just like, no, here, here I'll, I'll, I'll spend all day with you. Here's the book. I'll give you the book. I'll give you the book, you know, and then no follow-up <laughs> questions. You're just like, okay, all right, I guess. They'll they'll spend two hundred dollars or something.
6: Yeah, <laughs> you know, just was, to pick up on that. Oh, sorry. No, you go, go ahead, ahead, Richard. Go ahead. You to pick up on that point where you're talking about how these authors predict predict independent uh, cryptographic money like ten years before Bitcoin came around. Uh, you know, they have this section where they talk about the death of seniorage, like the end of this era where governments are able to rent seek and make profit by having control of the money supply, and what I find amazing is that not only do they predict this the emergence of this independent cyber money they also pick up on bitcoin's main value proposition 10 years before bitcoin even existed so they have they say um you know governments um Will not only lose their power to tax, they'll, they're will they also destined to lose the power of compulsion over money. This this new digital gold standard will be impossible to counterfeit. Like they're talking about a digital gold standard. So they're not getting distracted by pa- changes in payment systems or whatever, like they're picking. Yeah. So that's what I find amazing is, um, you know, we, it took us 10 years of arguing about Bitcoin to, to get to this point where we understand what what Bitcoin's proposition is, and they'd already figured that out ten years before it even existed.
4: Yeah, that's hilarious to think about. Like, if you explained the block size uh, trade offs to them uh, in twenty minutes, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, keep that shit small." <laughs> 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 they just be like, "Oh no, duh, absolutely." <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just to add to that,
5: that um, section on Cybercash, they say. This new digital form of money is destined to play a pivotal role in cyber commerce. It will consist of encrypted sequences of multi hundred digit prime numbers, unique, anonymous, and verifiable. This money will accommodate the largest transactions. It will also be divisible into the tiniest fraction of value. It will be tradable at a keystroke in a multi trillion dollar wholesale market without borders. I mean, that's priceless as fuck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like, the book is so characteristic of stuff like that, but that passage in particular, I'm sure, stood out to all of us. But what I find funny is that, like, they just—they were just like, "Yeah, of course, of course, that's going to be a thing." Whereas, like, I think a lot of us, at least in the conversations I've had, like, we were—we were a bit, you know, wowed by the fact that. Bitcoin was able to kind of sneak in the back door and get its footing um uh, and get enough of a footing so that it wasn't easily, you know, squashed in the early days and I'm almost surprised they didn't spend any time on that thinking like well if if it is such a, a um a game changer in terms of of the state's power dynamic like they didn't explore at all what the state's response might be to it in terms of trying to, to squash it or sideline or, or what have you. Now, maybe that's just cause they, they just knew that this there's no stopping the tide and this was going to happen by crook, hook or by crook. Uh, but I, I just, that made me smile when they didn't devote any time to that portion of it.
4: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's probably you think about it from the perspective of 1997, it's probably too, it's too far removed. You know, like he's, he's looking past that period to when it exists. And, and he, you're, you're right. They didn't take time to actually wonder about how it might come about. But I think that was kind of, that was the job of the cypherpunks, right? Like that, that's what they were doing every day. And they still hadn't figured it out or like gotten the, um, the, the whole architecture together. So It's it's kind of fascinating too that it is a it's kind of like a limit security you know like the the way Bitcoin works is one that did require a very long and vulnerable maturation phase to actually get to where it was secure on on a at a scale that is meaningful to nation states Um, but that as it continues to grow uh, it's it literally will just all the value will be soaked up into it, um, but uh, yeah, it's
0: it's Let crazy. Me put their this, perspective this out there. It. Let me put this out there because I think this is one of the interesting uh, parts of the thesis of this book, and it says that the growing importance of technology in shaping the logic of violence has led to an acceleration of history, leaving each successive transition with less adaptive time than ever before. So, what it's suggesting is that. We, we've been exploring how technology kind of always determines the me- megapolitical circumstance, but that the technology is becoming, with each sequential kind of large change, even more important and impactful in shaping the structure of the the, the, the prevailing circumstance. And so, as as the quote suggests, says, leaving less adaptive time than ever before. One of the things that, that first comes to my mind when I think of something like that, and I, I agree with with the, that assessment, is that when you have less time to adapt to something, the change can be far more disruptive or chaotic. And it does obviously explore that in the book from the both social, political, moral, and economic side of things. I'm wondering if you guys have any big takeaways from that. You
1: know, on on that point, it's it's interesting to think about that because. Um, You know, the older I get, the more I realize that you just kind of have to have the new come in and the old leave type of mentality, um, where it's hard to change people that are already ingrained in their beliefs and and kind of ideas. And it's just hard to change those, right. Um, And I think for the first time ever, we're having something move so quickly that we have to be adaptable within our own generation's paradigm. So, you know, when a sword came along, it, it it slowly made its way throughout society over generations. Uh, and I think, I think that's an interesting point that this is going to happen so fast that we have to be conscious and adaptable and have a growth mindset and be
3: willing to learn and, and dive in the, into the rabbit hole.
4: Yeah. I, uh, the amount of change, it's funny because people, um, And I think this may be more of it, like it will move in really big shifts because people are very slow to change, like how they think about a thing. Um, And when things are changing so rapidly, it's easy to kind of accept or live with a small contradiction. So it's like, okay, my worldview doesn't quite fit, but I'll just kind of like erase this part or just like try to isolate it over here and not like include it in my worldview. Um, and we'll just, we'll just kind of keep doing that, but that slowly the stuff that's pushed under the rug and tr- is trying to be ignored just becomes so massive, you know, <laughs> it just becomes this giant thing that's living in the house with you all the time until the pressure is so great that everybody just freaks out. And, and you have this like kind of conscious shift in society. Um, and obviously it, it, gets attached to riots and uh, institutions fail bankruptcies like it ends up being kind of the culmination of so much that kind of brews all at the same time um and that uh uh but it that it's inevitable you know like we're going through a transition and it's kind of the nature i guess kind of the final the the point that i wanted to lead to was that I don't know if, are are we going to reach a point where this slows down at all? You know, like, it it feels like, as every iteration, like, are we just kind of lagging behind permanently uh, at this point? Because technology is changing so fast, and the new iterations of technology are speeding up the the previous scale or the previous like acceleration of being able to test new things or come up with new ideas or talk and share share uh, current ideas it's moving so fast that i can't decide if we're just in an exponential curve that just goes to and and kind of the imagination of the authors in this book. They just kind of say like, you know, post year 2000, we just don't really know what the hell the world's going to look like. It's just obvious it's going to be hugely different. And there are so many people who have given so many like laying out the trends. Danny Hillis does this really great. He has a a video on YouTube where he goes back kind of a billion years and he just looks at this as this giant trend of uh, change that's happening and the acceleration of change. And I just can't decide if we're going to like, this is going to be an S curve and we're going to get like a break for a century or two before moving into some other wave. Or is this, does this ever end? I don't know. Do we ever catch up as people to figuring out what the hell the world is? Or do do we just kind of just being drugged behind this thing? Like tied ropes around our ankles and we're just like along for the ride.
5: Yeah. I think our evolutionary hind brains are having trouble catching up. (laughs) I think you see that with a lot of the cognitive dissonance in the world today. I mean, we went from you know hunter-gatherer tribes uh, that were, you know, very um, pressed for, for familial genetics and ensuring that you know our offspring survived to you know, being in larger groups that were part of Dunbar's number, you know, less a little less than 150 or so. Yeah, being you know nation states, um, and you know that, that still we still have that kind of um, selfish gene mentality where you know a lot of the nation state. Um, programming is to you know fight for your team, right? and fight for your genetics kind of thing. And I think that we'll continue to see you know some cognitive dissonance on that into the future. but um you know we with each new generation, I think
3: they're going to adapt to that a little bit differently, right?
2: well, and to to talk to your point a little bit more, John, I think the the alignment of incentives, so after reading the book, it just made me constantly see uh, events, current events, past events through the lens of uh, the incentive structure. And so th- one of the points the the book brings up is Coase's uh, Law, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, it states that companies expand until the cost of performing a transaction inside the firm exceeds the cost of performing it outside. And so uh, I think what that means is that we're gonna see large companies be broken up into smaller and smaller companies because the cost of doing business with many intermediaries or, or with many small individuals is gonna be less because, you know, we're, because of communication tools, because of technology. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just I, I look at the incentive structure of why does it make sense to have such a large company um, that ends up outsourcing things, why don't you just go
0: direct to that, that person that they're outsourcing the work to? Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the aspects I found interesting about the book because they did suggest that, you know, large kind of behemoth organizational structures would tend to decentralize and disintegrate for the reason that you just articulated, which I think you could make a case has been happening in certain contexts. And maybe where we're at now is maybe the zenith of the old megapolitical um, momentum, but both in the political category. And if you look at like the big tech companies, right, they've gotten so, so big rather than disintegrate over the intervening 20, 20 years. Do you guys have any kind of insights on why you think that is the case?
4: Um, I uh, actually just read a piece on the show, um, like a week or two ago, uh, called it was shelling points, network effects and Lindy. Um, and it's just talking about like communication protocols, languages, um, uh, like the, the one of the great examples and I always loved this one was VHS and Betamax. uh, you know, a uh, DVD or, uh, um, Uh, a blu-ray and hd hd dvd like that sort of thing like those those standards competitions in history um and why some of them like like all these network giants google uh facebook twitter like the social media things the reason they end up seeming like monopolies um is because communication protocols don't actually follow the same market dynamics as a normal good or product would. Like you would think like in a normal market, it's like, okay, well, I have a product, you have a product and and they compete and like things are free flowing and you want open competition. And this is also true when you're trying to find a communication protocol to like lock in on. But necessarily, the market is actually a consequence of having a communication protocol. You have to be using the same means of communication. You have to be using the same way to connect to each other and speaking with the same language and the same rules in order to establish a market for competition. Um, And therein lies a reason why so many of these networks become monopolistic. But to uh, Chris's point, is that they still are actually succumbing to the fact that they're getting so big and so bloated that they're not sustainable. They grow so fast and they get that monopoly on these networks, but as centralized companies, they can't keep up and you you can see it. Like there are cracks all over the place. Um, And uh, even with trying to have a very open working environment and like Google's like 80-20 rule of you work on whatever the hell you wanna work on sort of thing, even trying to make it as quote-unquote less centralized as possible, but still being a single business institution, um, uh, they're still getting super bloated. Like the technical debt in some of these companies now that need teams of hundreds of engineers just to make sure it still works with the rest of the crap that they're making. Um, uh, Ultimately, the end of that article was just talking about how open source, like moves slower and more gradually, but in the end, it will always end up with the better, more sustainable product and that slowly and surely like we'll step through all of these communication protocols or improvements in these communication protocols until we find a way to sustain them in an open source manner. And I I truly think if you kind of look at the trends of the digital world, I think that's pretty much true. I, th- I think that's a fair assessment that you look more and more into the future, we'll find the open source alternative. And it's the only thing that makes sense for that communication layer.
1: And I've, I think- I've got a thought thought on that. You know, I agree. I think going kind of what we were talking about earlier, Chris, is this kind of, you know, the tragedy of the commons. And, and right now the internet has created a lot of kind of tragedy of the commons combined with this freemium model. In other words, that like, these big organizations—Facebook, uh, Google, YouTube—they provide the product for free, where it'd be really annoying or difficult for the individual to create that and compete. They hook you in, and then they charge you something on the back end, or upsell you, or uh, sell your eyeballs to an advertising platform. And I think that's where the, the you know, uh, Nick Zabos uh, micro payments kind of model really comes in because how much better would your viewing experience be if it was aligned with what you actually wanted to see and could pay for in, in a not expensive way as opposed to you're throwing a middleman in there for advertising and that's kind of what ex- excites me the most because i i'm just gonna speak for myself is like i get distracted more than i ever want to with facebook and instagram and what if there was a product that was built and we were paying for that was much better aligned? And, and the similar with YouTube, with a lot of the cancel culture that's going on right now. I mean, I love to watch you guys, guys, guy. I love to watch your stuff on, you know, podcasts and whatnot. I'd love to, the, you know, pay for a little, like, be a better aligned with it, where you know the, the content that I'm watching is is just much more aligned. And you know, obviously I donate, but because uh, it's great stuff. But the, the the thing is, is that you want to align those interests, and that's kind of where I see the gap being. kind of john was mentioning earlier and you can see that there's a great ted talk called the freemium model and a lot of organizations tech organizations give something away for free box.com dropbox i mean it's just a a laundry list of tech companies that kind of get you hooked get in the platform get you on and then charge uh to upsell you spotify is another example um and then or advertise or even worse sell your data so i think that's going to be the most exciting thing and then Hopefully, you'll get a, away from this kind of news click bitty culture to something that's like, oh, let me share this. It'll go much more viral, and as it goes more viral, it's obviously adding a lot of value. And beca- people are becoming a lot more in depth rather than trying to become Instagram models or whatever the heck it is. Um, and I, and it was I, 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 here's an example that's coming top of my head. It was impossible to find about out inflation. You know, trying to understand the total addressable market of of Bitcoin you could not even find definitions of inflation then get data on it i mean now you've got a lot of that data because i've spent years in in this space because it's just a very interesting question but earlier on it it was almost impossible and i think that's a great example of of uh, of of a need that we all i think had that we couldn't find i couldn't find answers to Uh, and so that's kind of what i see bitcoin being able to do to create a perfect more perfect marketplace, but most importantly, it just aligns the interest. ideally where consumer and the producer, and there's no middleman and there's no friction, because right now it's the friction. People are like, I want that app for free. I want that product for free. But imagine paying 10 cents and you get a hundred times better product uh, that scales out to the globe. Um, so I think, I think that's what Bitcoin and micropayments will, will allow to have happen in our current model. And not even you know 100 years from now and and whatever crazy self-driving cars we're going to be we're going to be in hopefully we'll live 100 years that's the timeline
2: but so you're you're hitting on uh the uh the drum that i keep um you know from reading this book it's that uh, alignment of incentives right and so i just constantly keep going back to incentives and what are the incentives and um I can't remember if they mentioned this or not, but the the principal agent problem of uh, you know you put a CEO in charge of a company and now their their incentive structure is not for the user; it's for the you know the the stockholders, it's for their employees. And so again, you know, Bitcoin fixes this, right? But like the the incentive structure and the the, the principal agent problem. Um, is one that I, I think highlights the incentive structure and, and why companies continue to grow beyond the scale at which they should. And then, you know, Facebook initially solved a problem, right? It helped people. It was actually built to solve users' needs. And then the you know the, the book talks about this, where there's there's this tipping point where the organization is no longer serving its users. It's almost serving its own its own uh, ability to perpetuate itself. Um, and so I'll, I'll be curious to see how, um, you know, how Bitcoin in inside organizations, or, you know, the, the one I think of as Aragon, um, you know, I, I say what you want about Ethereum, but, uh, you know, Aragon can maybe start to solve that, that incentive structure and the alignment of, uh, of incentives.
1: And just for the the audience's definition, the the principal agent problem, and correct me if I'm wrong, chris, is is where you know you have a bureaucracy, an organization that gets so big where the individual interest within that unit is not to serve the client but in to serve their own individual interests. And you can usually think about that as in a larger organization, you're not necessarily focused on the client's needs. You're focused on getting promoted and and playing the politics within that organization. And so that's the biggest challenge within an organization, which can also be potentially solved by Bitcoin where you can pay people per idea and whatnot. And it just aligns the interest much more effectively. So that's, the pre- is that
2: correct, Chris? Pretty yeah, serious. yeah, right on.
4: Two things on that topic that are great to read just yeah. about that framing right there, um, is uh, one is called For Fun and For Profit. And it's about the history of the open source movement. And then uh, the other one is uh, what's really driving the cryptocurrency phenomenon, and it's really about that contest between uh, satisfying the management hierarchy versus the new culture that existed in like the era of microprocessing, about you know the internet and everything, this open source culture of like wanting to just go at and solve the problem as quickly and as succinctly as they could solve it is that these two basic classes essentially found themselves at odds with each other. And the institution was no longer there to, the engineers felt like they should be doing something than what the institution thought that they should be doing. And that that divergence has grown and that open source culture has fed on itself because it's one that's collectively just shares everything. And, and it's exploded um, in the last couple of decades in particular in, Bitcoin just just that alone, just having an open, independent money, um, I think itself is can double down that explosion. You know, the the thing we've been talking about is the acceleration of technology, that the new technology will feed on, will help speed up the iterations of the last, and Bitcoin's a perfect example. Open source, the one thing that open source always sucked at, was. Organizing, getting funds, paying for things. And now we have an entirely new technology, an entirely new ecosystem and a deflationary one at that where just staying in the space and devoting yourself to it could have huge profit potential just in savings like down the road. Um, it just, it's just it's one of those things that I feel like Bitcoin feeds on this, this exact like contest between those two um, in a major way.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um... marty bent's podcast the other day ethan vera was talking about something similar to that with regards to just open source development and you know the incentives of developers and um you know really producing products that solve the needs of the people that are coming to you know develop those products and um you know Alvin toffler talked about prosumers and consumers and you know in the future we'd have more prosumer oriented societies where you know, individuals who wanted to create something could be involved in the production process. And in the sovereign individual, they talk a little bit about uh, federal production lines run by independent contractors. And I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, they didn't really, they didn't have any uh, sense of 3D printing at that time. But you know, they're in um, Marty Ben's podcast the other day. Ethan was talking about. Um, just how there's a big divergence between the physical world and the software world when it comes to open source development and that type of um, collaboration uh, in, in a um, kind of distributed environment. And I think that um, with Bitcoin, that gives us a common language where independent contractors can come together and work on projects like that. And with 3D printing, um, I think it's something that we'll see a lot more of. I mean, especially in the time of COVID, right? where uh, also in the book, they talk a little bit about just in time inventory and how technology is, um, uh, creating an environment where, you know, having just in time inventory is beneficial to these organizations. Uh, but as we can see with COVID and with the, um, uh, supply chain disruptions that we've had recently, that has
3: become a huge issue. Yeah.
0: Guys, uh. We're going to start winding it down soon. I want to touch on a few few additional things, but I have a feeling my connection has been horrible. So I'm going to have to apologize for uh, how spotty that's been. I dropped out a few minutes ago. But uh, anyways, I, so all good points, but I want to touch on something that Guy was referring to in terms of are we always doomed to just be dragged along by this thing? Are we always kind of like trying to catch up to the event horizon and as a result like is it just something we have to accept that the people who see these changes earlier will be the ones to adapt capitalize and thrive and the people who you know don't see it refuse to see it don't have the capability means or circumstance to adapt they are going to be subject to it because in the book they talk about these changes and as when you assess history you delineate certain times and certain events. And you know they talk about the collapse of one system in favor of the nation state. They're talking about the collapse of the nation state in favor of this decentralized sovereign individual model. But will people notice it or will you just wake up one day and you'll be in another one? Kind of like the way fashion works. We look back at the 80s and we're like, holy fuck, people look ridiculous. But there was never like a point at which we can, like, it wasn't like, oh, 96, that changed. It just, you get all these tiny, tiny incremental changes over time until you wind up in a completely different situation. And the reason why I think that is, is relevant is because today, as they say, political shifts, we're seeing the manifestations of the people who are, are subject to... the the more negative aspects of this coming change. I think we talk about this as Bitcoiners. We see where this is going. And on the other side of it, we're excited about what's going to be there, a more peaceful, a more prosperous society, better forms of cooperation, more efficient, more productive, et cetera. But a a big group of people are are experiencing this change and this transition in a very negative way. And uh, I'm gonna read a couple passage and then I'll, passages from the book, then I'll open it up to a discussion about the kind of social and political negative effects of this larger change, and if there's anything that can be done about it. Um, so for one, it goes, for this reason, it's to be expected that one or more nation states will undertake covert action to subvert the appeal of transients. And I had to um, say this, this quote, because someone brought up COVID, travel could be effectively discouraged by biological warfare, such as the outbreak of a deadly epidemic. This could not only discourage the desire to travel, it could also give jurisdictions throughout the globe an excuse to seal their borders and limit immigration. I'm not suggesting that's the case with COVID, but these are the types of consider- considerations that we make. Um, it also says the political judgment seemed less a response to the real world than a pseudo-reality that the general public has constructed about phenomena beyond their direct knowledge. In the information age, it will be much less important that governments be large and powerful than to be honest. And uh, just one about uh, the social issues. Um, megapolitical transitions are never popular because they antiquate painstakingly acquired intellectual capital and confound established moral imperatives. They are not undertaken by popular demand but in response to changes in the external conditions that alter the logic of violence in the local setting. Major transitions always involve a cultural revolution and usually entail clashes between adherence of the old and new values. So I think there's plenty examples of, in our world today of you know, the manifestations of this anxiety that's induced from this mega political change. And I just get, wanted to get you know, your takes on uh, of that i think that you
6: know one of the theses of the of the book is is that history speeds up like over time like if you look at um you know the agricultural revolution played out over millennia and then you've got the feudal revolution the industrial revolution over centuries and now with this information revolution it's actually happening fast enough that an individual who can predict the future or at least predict the trends in which we're heading can set themselves up to profit from that within their own lifetime. Um, so I think to your your point before, it is it is possible for what the, they call these people these sovereign individuals to to set yourself up to benefit from these changes. But that then the other side of that coin is that generally people are conservative. That's the point they make. So that you are going to have a fallout from this. Um, a lot of the changes they predict aren't necessarily good. They they say that. Um, one thing they pr- predict is an I- an increase in in inequality. That, that we're going to see a an, an amplification of these winner take all effects. Um, and you know they they make parallels to the fall of the Roman Empire, um, they, you know the transition to feudalism and things like that. So yeah, according to their thesis, this this kind of social unrest uh, and this reaction is playing out almost as they predicted.
4: Yeah, if. Uh... If the three different like little segments that you had just writ- uh, read uh, were written in present tense, I could totally believe somebody was just trying to explain what the hell is going on today.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree. And that's, that's, that's part of the crazy prescience of the book. But here's another passage. The growing tribalization and marginalization of life have had a stunning effect on discourse and even on thinking. Many people have consequently gotten into the habit of shying away from conclusions that are obviously implied by the facts at their disposal. For these and other reasons, the age of information has not yet become the age of understanding. To the contrary, there has been a sharp drop-off in the rigor of public discourse. To your point, Guy. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, that couldn't be more true. Um, And, you know, it's, it's kind of the... And I liken that to the nature of being exposed to ideas and conversations and perspectives that we're used to just being able to pretend don't exist because they're not in our immediate social circles. Um, And they're not part of the overarching narrative that you get from the, you know, three television stations that exist. Um, like, Like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the narratives were so narrow, like they were together, everybody was on the same page. It was just very easy for people to not be overwhelmed with information and therefore just rest on, whether it's a lie or not, fall on a single kind of image for what the world is, Um, a single narrative for the country or the people, whatever the hell it is. Um, And information technology has just, just just took a nuclear bomb to that and thrown so many in in the mix all at once. But what's funny is that because you can see the transition if you step back from it, and particularly like with this book, if you kind of look at this from the logic of violence and you just kind of see these huge dynamics, it's so weird to think about like, yeah, it probably is going to make inequality worse um, for. A long time, maybe even. Um, and it's gonna hurt and it's gonna throw so many people, like just rugs out from under them, and they're gonna smash on the floor, like what the hell just happened? They're not even gonna see it coming. Um, and it just kind of feels like technology is moving at such a fast pace. And it's even worse if people aren't even really paying attention to what is changing. They're just kind of getting mad in the moment when things aren't turning out exactly like they thought it would. Um, like we're all just we're literally on this giant rocket and nobody has a clue where it's going and a lot of people are fighting over the steering wheel and you know the only there's only like five or six seats and basically the bitcoiners have, are the ones that got that there's only a handful of comfortable corners on this thing and everybody else is literally just duct tape to the outside of it and <laughs> and it's just it's just going as blasting as hard as it can go and we're just we're just here um and it's, it's, it's just kind of crazy that it just feels totally out of our control. And the best we can do is observe it and kind of see its trajectory.
0: Well, I've, I've well, got to read one more passage uh, <laughs> uh, just because of what you just said, but it goes this way. The stimulus to collective violence comes largely from the anxieties people experience when established institutions fall apart. If misery or danger compounds the anxiety, runs the theory, the reaction becomes all the more violent. In Tilly's view however violence is not so much a product of quote anxiety as it is far more rat as it is a far more rational attempt to bully authorities into quote meeting their responsibilities motivated motivated by a quote sense of justice denied i mean there's this seems like such a as, as we keep saying uh, modern commentary you you could apply that to what's going on in in many cases today right
1: right you know that on that thought like i I think there's a lot of parallels just too many parallels to the roman empire that lasted i think about three thousand years richard you know brought up i think it's very interesting that they started debasing their currency uh and then you know towards the end of the empire there was the politicians that were buying votes from the people to continue to get more resources and i you know i think you can see that today where with the handouts and and the six hundred dollars and you know so just a kind of question if that's happening, um, and they used to call it bread and circuses. You just entertain the people, and then you give them free food, and you win their votes, and you become the politician. You get more resources. Going back to Chris's point, agent versus principal, or whatever the I forget the exact now, and it's just too perfect, you know. And if you study the Roman Empire, it, it's falling just like it is right now. And Adam Back had a great tweet where he mentioned like. It's the fall of the Roman empire and people are sitting there trying to pick which color politician they want and who's going to ride the Titanic all the way down to the bottom. The Titanic has got a gashing huge hole in it and people are not even uh, rearranging the deck chairs on top They're arguing about how to arrange the deck chairs and who's going to lead, you know, that deck chair. And and so I think that to me is a very interesting kind of analogy and thought process. And it's very similar to the Roman empire falling 3000 years ago. Um, again, the same things were happening in terms of a democracy was falling or a republic that was falling, excuse me. Um, and then the other thing that, I, you know, to, to add to that thought process is that the Roman Empire was, you know, extremely strong. I mean, it controlled, you know, let's say 90 percent of the world economy. I don't know if that's accurate, but I'm just throwing that number out there. Now we live in a, a global society where governments could subvert, you know, the United States government, for example. You know, you think a business it makes a, a good return on investment to buy a senator, makes a good return on investment as a business to do that. Imagine if you're a foreign country, you know, how what's the return on investment of buying a politician? And so there's a really great um, interview by a former KGB agent. Uh, the title of it on YouTube is Former KGB Agent Yuri Bezmenov Warns America About Socialist Subversion. And so, not only do you have what's happening in perfect parallel with with the fall of the Roman Empire, but now you add a set, you know another factor here, which is other governments could subvert a democratic government because it's so easy to buy a politician. The return on investment is just there. Why would you go to war with that country when you can just give two, three, four, five million dollars, which is you know is the cost of a, an Apache helicopter or whatever the numbers are, and the the, <laughs> the return on violence is now the return on subversion or buying a politician because it's a democratically elected you know, government. And so you don't need to go and invade that country, you just buy their democracy. And I think that adds, I don't wanna say a cherry on top, but I guess I don't have any other analogy. So it just adds a different, another
3: dynamic, which accelerates this, um, which might make it worse.
6: Uh, thoughts? I,
3: uh,
6: I watched that, um that video that you're talking about with the the KGB agent Yuri Be- Bezmenov and yeah I found that really interesting first of all cuz you know it's from the, the mid 80s or something and it's um it's pretty prescient and he almost makes the point that it's not like the the, the Russians have to deliberately subvert um, America that it's almost the Americans are doing it to themselves and he talks about this generation um, of people that grew up in in the 60s and 70s who are now running the institutions, um, they have this, this mindset that, um, oh, it's almost like you forget, you, you, get, you get it so good that you forget how you got there in the first place. Like we almost forget the fact that it's, it's capitalism, it's a process of production and exchange that creates wealth and wealth is not something that that is just falls falls from the sky and it needs to be created and so with so much focus on the redistribution of wealth you know this capture of the state by its employees basically which is another another thing that the sovereign individual talks about uh yeah it's almost like a, a crumbling fr- from within uh, as much as is subversion from outside
5: yeah i agree i think we're going to see a lot of backla- backlash to these you know forces of, um, decentralization and, um, you know, just the trend that we're headed on with, and that, um, you know, really if you want to ensure that you're going to come out ahead on this, and you know, that this, the socialists and the nationalists and the neo-Luddites that are stuck in their positions, um, they're going to have a really hard time, I think. Um, But there's one quote in the book here that says, to optimize your lifetime earnings and become a sovereign individual, you will need to become a customer of government protection service rather than a citizen. Instead of paying whatever tax burden is imposed upon you by grasping politicians, you'll be better positioned to prosper in the information age by freeing yourself to negotiate a private tax treaty that obliges you to pay no more for services of government than they're actually worth to you. And I think we're starting to see some cracks in the seams with regards to different jurisdictions that might open up. I mean, I think it was Bermuda the other day that indicated that they were um, accepting foreigners to come and stay on a work visa for a year uh, during the COVID crisis. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that. Um, So if you get ahead of that trend, I think you're going to be a little bit better off. Um, But the folks that are really entrenched in their positions that
3: don't want to budge, they're going to have a really hard time, I think.
0: Yeah, one of the the points I'd like to make on that, and that's kind of what I was getting at, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes ago is that, and we talked about this before we started the live stream, but will we see a bifurcation as a result of the people that most depend on, I guess, the existing system and will cling to it as much as possible to try to wring from it every last ounce of benefit they can get from it or perceived benefit, versus the people who will see the writing on the wall and have the ability to extricate themselves from a situation. And I'd love to finish with that discussion about citadels and individual sovereignty and you know, what this book both recommends and what everyone is thinking about it. But one of the things I found it, uh, fascinating was they did, Blake, I think you referenced this, You know, kind of uh, suggest that wars of the nature of World War I and Two and those, those kind of hot physical wars are uh, a thing of the past, and the f- future wars will be information wars and 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 things like that, which you know that's a pretty um, lofty uh, assumption or prediction to make. I'm encouraged by it because I'd love for that to be the case because I think we've all the narrative of rising power in China, declining power in the U S and the dynamic that's played out when that's been the case in previous times in history, that's probably played on all of our minds to some degree as we look out on the world and assess what's going on. And so, you know, I, I, that's a bold prediction. I hope it's accurate. Um, But as I'm thinking about what kind of things the book left out or got wrong, do you think that's one of those things or do you broadly agree with it?
3: Sorry, this specifically, yeah. what, go ahead, someone else.
0: I was just
5: gonna say real quickly, I, I definitely think they underestimated the rise of China and the um, popularity of socialism for sure. So I think we're gonna have a, a bumpy period for a while. Well, it's interesting, cause I
1: you know, wrote down, I think the sovereign individual is the opposite of 1984. So I think there was, you're going two directions and there's only two directions. You're going in, you know, full monopoly on violence and they're going to control and see into, you know, Google Alexa, Google Home or, you know, whatnot, and they're going to be able to control everything. Uh, and I think because now you have the power of the money and going back to the principal agent problem, you're going to be able to have the alignment of the individual interests going down from, you know. Network effects of of you know you want a better search engine or more aligned with your values or aligned with your interests of a search, uh, YouTube things of that nature, but also even more importantly the government, and so the sovereign individual to me is the, you know is the opposite of 1984, and it's interesting to think I think you know at the core root, uh, Bitcoin or sound money and a money that you can't influence is is kind of at the principle of that fight. Um, And now it feels like it's been won, hopefully, and it's just going to play out the way the technology would allow
3: that to play out. I don't know if that answered your question, John. uh...
4: Yeah, I think um, like on the point of not see, I, I was thinking about it, particularly like listening through it this time around. Like, why wouldn't, like, why didn't they see the potential of, you know, China? Like growing up, like what was it about China that really made it stand out in its like transition to this, and how did we end up with this massive? Um, the nineteen eighty four basically, China was a pretty good example of the the huge surveillance state, the social the credit system. Like I mean, it's oof, it's crazy. Um, and uh, and in thinking about it, is you know, China is relatively like they were not it's they have not been a wealthy like like market economy for a very long time um and in in thinking about like the the stages of development and uh going back to the thesis of the the second wave and the third wave uh alvin toffler's thing and applying that to the sovereign individual idea is that china kind of went through there's like a highly accelerated pace of their second stage centralized build a giant country of a manufacturing plant like they went through that phase at an incredibly rapid pace very late when all when the third wave technology was already here um but honestly i think looking at their situation i think they're just as precarious as the us um i don't really think they're in a much better position uh, overall. And, and I think Bitcoin is something that really just undermines both of them uh, kind of kind of at their foundation. Um, but one of the most fascinating things about this book that I really, I didn't think about it because I'm always looking at the big picture and I forget sometimes to narrow it down and go back and look at local and what does that mean at the local level. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating after they broke down how the hierarchy of violence and the scale, more importantly, the scale of violence fails to actually pay, pay what it costs essentially. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't make that profit anymore is that you'll actually see an explosion in local mafia. Like, like you'll get the, you'll like, it will, the violence won't actually go away, particularly at first, you'll just completely change where it is and it will all become localized again. Uh, Local violence and individual crime and that sort of thing will suddenly be on the rise and you'll be worried about who your county government is or your county mafia, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It literally just changes the scale. Um, And I'm thinking uh, here it's like, oh, you know, it's the state and uh, everything's my framing. My whole framing is just the state, the nation state, the nation state. And it's like, oh, well, where does it go? It's just like, where, where, you know, where's the where does the water flow? after the walls break down uh from its you know central organization hub uh and it's it's crazy to think that you know that's that's going to be that's going to be a huge part of the transition as as we go lower and lower and lower down that that violence hierarchy i guess i guess is a way to put it
1: well it's it's interesting to think about that and then citadels because immediately when you mentioned (laughs) that i was like Oh, you're just talking about a citadel. (laughs) Um, And so like, you know, hopefully this time instead of the the gangs, and I'm sure there will be a combination of this. So the people that get in early and get the way these systems are developed and they'll go quickly into their own little communities and they'll protect themselves and create their citadels. And then there'll be people that, you know, want to uh, hang on to the nanny state and just continue that as long as they possibly can, because that's what they were promised. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though the government has no ability, no
4: money left, uh, you know, it's kind of magical that that the citadel meme aligns so perfectly with this. Like it really is like, it's a joke, but it's not a joke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It ain't a joke at all. (laughs) That shit's definitely going to happen. I mean, all the more after reading this book, I mean, if, if you needed any convincing, I think it probably provided that, but, um, I'm going to shut this down now, guys. I got one more question for everybody. Uh, I'm going to apologize again for the connection and sound issues because they've been horrible on my end. But how dare um, you? What <laughs> one thing? I'll change it for next time, God, One thing to your point, and then two uh, passages from the book before my final question. But so one uh, passage from that refers to what you were just talking about, guys. If information systems are designed properly, nation states would merely be able to sabotage or destroy certain sums of digital money, not seize it. The conclusion is that most predictable and vulnerable assets of the rich in the coming information age may be their physical persons, in other words, their lives, which is why we fear Luddite-style terrorism in the coming decades, some of it perhaps covertly encouraged by agents, provocateurs, and the employ of nation states. And within that uh, chapter, they go into the kind of the vacuum that may be left over if the nation state were to recede in the protection and hierarchy of violence that it provides. And as you said, into that vacuum, as is the case always, there may slip another provider of somewhere on the hierarchy of vi- violence, and that could be organized crime or what have you. But I think it's also important to remember that the reason why the state's um, monopoly on violence will recede is because the defensive capabilities of the individual have increased. And that may mean there's less of a vacuum. For you know a new uh, a new violent uh, agent to uh, to slip into, but the the, the two uh, two more things. So systems that work most effectively under the widest range of conditions depend for their resilience upon spontaneous order that accommodates novel possibilities. I'm including that just because that's a passage I like. The final passage is this: the commercialization of sovereignty itself depends upon the willingness. Of hundreds of thousands of sovereign individuals and many millions of others to deploy their assets in the first bank of nowhere in order to secure immunity from direct compulsion. Those among the information elite will certainly be smart enough to recognize a good thing when they see one. And I wrote in my book notes Bitcoiners. So, my question to all of you guys is what does a sovereign individual do? What is their plan of attack in this circumstance in 2020? What does a sovereign individual look like, and what are they thinking about doing?
4: I want to say one Bitcoin an answer by buying Bitcoin.
0: That's that better be part of it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'll say one thing really quick before I actually answer the question was that I totally, I could not, know, I did not remember anywhere, and somehow I didn't catch it either. But that Bank of Nowhere was in this book. That was a quote. Dang it. Yep. I'd, I, I'd been wondering where the heck I heard Bank of Nowhere. It's um, awesome, been right? Thinking of, like for a while, like Bank of Nowhere, Bank of Everywhere. What is what, is, what works better for Bitcoin? Um, and I could have sworn I'd heard it somewhere. And it's been bouncing around my head for months and months and months. And you just you just finally cleared that up for me. So thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll share real quick. Uh, one of the things I'm watching is uh, for second-order effects, and just kind of diving in and studying that because I believe this time it, there's going to be opportunity, um, whether it's buying real estate or whether it's buying businesses. So, um, and and the the quote that I like from the book is to to try and predict the future, we must draw out the implications of, of events. They're already known. Uh, sometimes referred to as second-order effects or uh, or knock-on effects. Sorry, that was not a quote. That was just my notes from from the book.
4: Um, the I, I, one thing that I think like applying this framework is that people need to stop thinking of themselves as citizens and start thinking of themselves as shoppers. Shoppers of law shoppers of jurisdiction and a unintelligent uninformed shopper is going to get screwed every time they go in the store you you need to start looking at these things like products you know there are some things that if you learn a lot about the product if you really hunt for reviews if you if you really go shopping you can almost always find something that really like solves a problem like and You should be open to that. We should be open to that. Just like Chris just said is, I think in the, in this period where things are changing so fast and to such a huge effect, like there's going to be a mountain of opportunity. And the last thing we should be doing is letting the chaos and the depression get like, just get us apathetic from it because there's also unbelievable opportunity to see what's moving and get ahead of it, move in the right direction as things are starting to shift. Um, And uh, the, in fact, this is like one of the only quotes I actually had saved, Um, but uh, it's a quote from the book that's a quote from Tom Stoppard, Uh, but it says, the future is disorder. A door like this has cracked open maybe five or six times since we got up on our hind legs. It is the best possible time to be alive when almost everything you thought you knew is wrong. And I just thought that was the best sum up. And it's also early in the book. But like that is, I think, how we should look at this and buy Bitcoin, that too. And listen to Bitcoin Audible.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
4: yeah, I agree with
0: that. And then Chris, uh, you got some last words. I know you got to go. Uh,
2: this was awesome. I I love getting to talk with other people that uh maybe are are in, in different bubbles from mine, but uh yeah, um it, this book has impacted me and it continues to impact me, uh shifting my my thinking um I'll need to revisit it again uh probably next year, and then just keep pulling out the, the the things that I can apply to my own life because um you know the the authors are at this really high level, but I, I think the themes that they the well, themes and even tools that they give really uh, allow us to be able to um to look at things that are happening and and make judgments uh on them and predict uh the future even.
3: <laughs> totally. Yeah, this well, is thanks def- for joining us man. I know you got to duck out so uh appreciate your input. Yeah. Thanks guys.
4: Later man. Thanks Chris. Thanks Chris. Yeah, this is definitely one of those books that deserves a re-listen. Like like or or reread i'm a a listener these days um but uh it's one that you can just like every time like i'm always catching new things or something that like just seemed to be the middle of a paragraph that might not be important but that just kind of had his own gold nugget in there um but yeah this is definitely one i'll be revisiting everyone ever so often yeah
6: I think my last last word on the book would be that one of the things I find most inspiring about it is this idea that um, the progress of the information age is like the ultimate in providing a quality of opportunity. And as um, capital, the value of capital transitions away from being physical to being intellectual or digital, it really levels the playing field for anyone in any part of the world with an internet connection um, to contribute and, and to monetize their skills. And so we, we argue a lot about equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. And I think um, you know, we come to the conclusion that equality of outcome is a mirage and not that doesn't work. And, so, and the course of socialism has proved that. But I think that's, that's an uplifting thing to think about, is that the information age and the digital age is the equality of opportunity that, that we've all been hoping for.
3: Great point.
5: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, these are really interesting times. I mean, I think we have some great opportunities here. Uh, the number one thing that I would say is just take responsibility for yourself, you know, strengthen ties with family and your community. Make sure that you know where your food comes from, learn to defend yourself and just ride the wave and try to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. Yeah. And for me,
1: um, you know, what it, Takes to be a sovereign individual or transitioning into a more sovereign individual. I mean, the first answer is obviously Bitcoin. So um, if you you don't know that by now, you, you might want to get some. Um, but the the other thing is is the uh, the community. Um, you know, I don't want to be left out of the Citadel, so to speak. Um, you know, one one of the reasons is that I think it's just such a passionate, intelligent, growth-oriented community. You know, I met Guy briefly; uh, didn't even recognize him at the 2019 Bitcoin conference, and the people there were so passionate and they wanted to change the world and they didn't care about making money. Um, I mean, they could, they could actually define what money was, which is more than what most people could do. Um, but you asked them immediately what they were going to want to do in the next 10 years. And almost all the answers were around education and building a community, um, and creating systems to help educate and help future generations. And, you know, that's what the Citadel, you know, would mean to me and, and creating this uh, community as early as often as you can, because, you know, thinking 30 years down the road, if this Citadel thing is happening, then we're creating a community and an educational system and building, you know, web 2.0 or 3.0 or 6.0 or whatever that that entails. And we're doing it in to to help the people around us. And I think that is a very exciting place. I think it was Satoshi that, you know, or no, it was uh, Trace Mayer actually mentioned that the, he wanted to get it to the libertarians and he wanted to get it to that group of people because he knew that those are the people that cared about changing the world in a positive way. And you know that resonated with me, and I couldn't think of a better thing to do is start creating that community now and then be able to act on that community in the future with people that want to have the same goals, which is that financial independence to make the world a better place. And you know, I think there's a couple of stages of, of Bitcoiners. I think there's your early technology geek, you've got your Austrian economics person, and then I think we're in the wave of the the growth-minded, rapid learner you know, uh, that's continuing to always educate themselves, ask questions that are curious and are leveraging the internet for that podcast, YouTube videos, the Sovereign Individual book. And I think, you know, looking at Guy and and John, your podcast, like that's what I see happening and the people that can, you know, jump down the rabbit hole, that's, that's a real difference there. And I think for me, that's what the the next stage of the Sovereign Individual is, is just really
3: creating that community um, with people that are like-minded.
0: That's beautiful, man. I think that's the perfect place to end it, unless anyone has some some final bits they want to add. I Are we good?
4: That's a good close. That's a good
0: close. Yeah, I like that's it. a good clues, close. All right, guys. Well, look, it's been super fun. Before the uh, internet connection craps out and I lose my daylight, I'm going to sign off. Thank you all for uh, for your input in this. I'm sure we'll do another one again sometime soon if not another one on the sovereign individual, because I'm sure there's more to unwrap with it all. But uh, always a pleasure uh, speaking with you, Guy, and for the others that I've uh, just connected with today. Thanks for coming on and uh, hope you're all well and we'll talk soon. Peace. Later.